Freemasonry and its history have a proud footing in things like Lodge of Refreshment, Table Lodge, even our tavern beginnings. This evening, we're going to be talking about some of the proud history behind the Lodge at Refreshment. And we have an awesome guest on this evening that's going to help walk us through just some of that special history and maybe, just maybe, share a special recipe with us at the end. So I hope you stick with us this evening as we take historical light from labor to refreshment right after this. Welcome back to the Historical Light Masonic Podcast, dedicated to illuminate our past and bring our Masonic history to light since 2016. Enjoy the show. Welcome back to another episode of Historical Light. I'm your host, Brother Alex Powers. Uh, so proud to be back. And for the first time this evening, we're also live on TikTok. So if you're joining us there, I appreciate you guys uh, trying to keep it fresh and uh, hit all those platforms for you guys. So thanks so much for joining in. Uh, we do have Yvette as well uh, sharing everything out for us this evening. So Thank you so much uh, for doing that and also acting as the moderator over on the TikTok side. So I've introduced myself and now I need to introduce our special guest for this evening, Brother Cedric Jacobson. Thank you so much for joining us. My brother, if you don't mind, uh, if you give us a more proper introduction. Of course. Um, I'm very glad to be here tonight with you, Brother Alex, and um, just excited to share some of the things that I've gotten more and more interested over the years in masonry. Uh, I was made a Mason in 2013, uh, was very active in my mother lodge there. Uh, a couple years later, joined the Masonic Lodge of Research uh, in Connecticut, uh, and then um, was engaged in the York Rite, uh, sat in the East in both chapter and council, uh, as well as uh, the Research Lodge. Um, and then uh, since that time have gotten involved with the York Rite College uh, and the Allied Masonic Degrees. That's fantastic. So you stay busy. <laughs> I try to, although um, shortly before the pandemic, my uh, then uh, girlfriend and now wife and I moved from Connecticut to Boston and uh, the Connecticut uh, lodges are still like, they hold a special place in my part, uh, in my heart. And I have kind of struggled to uh, find a new home lodge here, especially given uh, the pandemic interruptions. That's a lot to go through. First of all, congratulations, I think. Uh, is thank you. Here, right? Uh, that's huge. I mean, going through the pandemic, that big of a change, but also a marriage during the pandemic, that that's a lot. <laughs> that's a huge undertaking. Mm -hmm. So, um, But we're we, settled now. So that's I'm, I'm ready to get back out to lodges. There you go. So we, we usually start things off by hitting you up with a few icebreaker questions just to get to know you a little bit. And mm -hmm. the first one we have for you is what brought you into Freemasonry? Sure. Um, so I uh, moved to New Haven, Connecticut in uh, 2012, I think. Um, not I think, it was 2012. 
Uh, and uh, it was a brand new place. I, I didn't know anyone there. I had moved there for work. Uh, and I, I really uh, grew up in a, in a community that was pretty tight knit. And so I was seeking to kind of create that experience for myself uh, in my new home. Uh, and I, you know, went around and, and shopped for different churches and joined a church and that kind of scratched the itch for a while. Um, but I found myself really wanting to connect with other like-minded people, uh, people who I could uh, enjoy time with beyond just, you know, a, a Sunday worship service or a weekday Bible study. Uh, and uh, to anticipate your second question, uh, I knew a little bit about Masons. Um, because my my grandfather was a Mason and sat as master of his lodge in the 60s. Um, and so I had kind of a favorable uh, opinion of them uh, in that regard. And it just so happened one Sunday that the uh, local uh, commandery was doing a special presentation at church. And I hung out afterwards and chatted with a few of the brothers there. Uh, and shortly thereafter came and uh, visited uh, not the lodge, but the the brothers before the meeting and uh, shared a meal with them. And that kind of started my journey. That's awesome, man. So yeah, you took us right into the second question where I, I typically ask if you have family history in Freemasonry, which you do. So I, I ponder here, how much of a role did that family history play into you really wanting to make this leap? Or was it really something else? Um, I think that part of it was uh, some desire to connect with my grandfather mm. um but also i think you know i was at that that point in my life i was in my uh mid to late 20s uh i was starting to really think about my own development as a human uh you sure. know you're you're done with college you stop you know reading textbooks uh i i wanted to do things that that could push me to continue to to develop uh, not only socially, but like interpersonally and from a maturity standpoint and all of the above. Uh, and I also have kind of a, a deep interest in history and historical connections, uh, right. hence the topic of tonight's conversation. <laughs> um, and the, the lodge that I joined in Connecticut uh, happened to be the oldest in Connecticut. It was chartered in 1750. Uh, and so there was a, a rich history and tradition uh, at Hiram Lodge number one that I feel very fortunate to have been a part of. That's fantastic. That's fantastic. So before we get into the main topic for this evening, uh, we want to give you guys out there a chance, as we always do, uh, to join the Historical Light team. Uh, we are viewer supported. We've been around since 2016 and hope to continue that with you guys. So if you like what you see, like what we're doing here, uh, you can go to our website, historicallight.com support and become part of the family, part of the team uh, by supporting us through Patreon. Other quick announcement is MasonicCon Kansas is coming up quickly on the calendar, August 27th. Get those tickets while you still can. We have a few left. You can go to MasonicConKansas.com and get those tickets as well. Uh, Historical Light is hosting that. We have some really, really amazing speakers coming to Kansas City, some of them for the first time. Uh, so go check out the website, see the roster lineup, and come join us. So, brother, I am stoked about uh, this topic this evening. When when I talked to you about it originally and you showed me some of your mm -hmm. notes, I was like, oh, man, this is amazing. So what brought you about 
really kind of the interest in the logic refreshments and mm -hmm. what, what got you into this research? Sure. Um, I, my first ever Masonic research paper was, uh, as I mentioned, my lodge was chartered in 1750. We had, uh, kind of a sense of the more recent places where the lodge had met. Uh, the building that the, the lodge still meets in was constructed in 1926. The one before that uh, was constructed in the 1860s. Uh, but memory got kind of fuzzy after that. Um, okay. And I was very curious about where the lodge originally met. Um, and so I started a, a pretty long research project with a, a dear friend and spent, you know, many long nights at the temple uh, digging through the archives, looking at old uh, minutes and secretary's notes, trying to decipher dates and places. Um, and in in that, that research, we uh, ended up creating uh, a map of New Haven or an overlay of a map of New Haven, Connecticut from uh, 1748, uh, and we sort of like traced the lodges, uh, meeting places from its inception, uh, up to present oh, day. That's amazing. Uh, and so in my, you know, months with nose in the, in the record books, I ended up coming across a lot, a lot of receipts. Uh, and you know, <laughs> it's very strange to see old receipts because I say receipt and I think that, you know, narrow strip of paper, uh, it seems like the, the older receipts, especially receipts of organizations like a lodge would just be on like little scraps of paper, oftentimes right. with a torn edge. Uh, and it would be, you know, to brother so-and-so or to this organization, and then just kind of a, a quick list of things and the total, uh, and so we, I, I kept seeing these receipts over and over, and it would be like, here's a gallon of rum, here's three gallons of wine, uh, it, here's, uh, we need to get the aprons cleaned. I don't know if there's overlap there, uh, but it sure seemed like there was plenty of uh, imbibing as yeah. uh, part of the, the social aspect of masonry. And the, the more I saw it, the more and more I grew curious about kind of a story behind what was happening there. That's awesome, man. Mm -hmm. You met, you mentioned overlap and, you know, funny story pops in my head because the one that I saw in ours quite a bit was cleaning of the aprons. I mean, like mm -hmm. several times a year. And when I was going through that, uh, writing the book on my lodge, it kind of blew my mind. Cause I'm like, when the hell's the last time we cleaned the aprons? They used to do this <laughs> like monthly, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And then I learned the hard way that aprons do not do well in the washing machine unless they're in a special mm -hmm. bag. And you know, that was fun. But <laughs> yeah, it, it's super interesting to kind of get that inside look at what they were buying and, and how they were transacting during those days. Mm -hmm. um, and the our lodges receipts were most uh, occasionally uh, like a, a rental fee for a room, although that was rare. The earliest dated receipt I could find was for uh, purchase of gloves and then laundering of aprons. Uh, and then awesome. those are the main like items. And then it's just uh, food and alcohol and food and alcohol. <laughs> Happy people. <laughs> it seems like it, you know, they, there's this uh, illusion, I think of our founding fathers as kind of teetotaling, very righteous people. Uh, right. But in, you know, the, the 1770s, 1780s, 
the average per capita consumption in America was 3.7 gallons of uh, the hard stuff, not just right. beer and wine. That's the right. spirits. They knew how to party, man. Mm -hmm. They really did. <laughs> All right, man. Well, you have me super intrigued. Uh, I'm, I'm going to turn it over to you. I want to hear about the Logic Refreshment. Yes, absolutely. Thank you. Um, so I have some visuals to go along with the, the chat today. Um, if you're listening to the podcast uh, form of this presentation, uh, you'll miss a little, but I, I have tried to structure it in a way that it's not too, too much. Um, so this is just a slide showing kind of an early tavern type picture. And uh, there's a quote from a book that we'll reference a little bit later on uh, that discusses the importance of punch to early America. And uh, for the benefit of listeners, I just want to read it briefly. It says, <clears throat> in the age of chaos, long before the creation of the cocktail, spirituous and aqueous, thick and thin, Sweet and sharp and unctuous were all tumbled together in one undifferentiated mass without form or order. Then from the east there rose a sun to dry the wet and distill the light from the heavy. And then all the drinks began to know, began to know their proper kind and submit the willfulness of their doing to the correction of just reason. That sun had a name and that name was Punch. Uh, I include this quote uh, for a couple of reasons, I think it will be obvious to Masons, um, but also to indicate that you know prior to the um, the movement to, to ban alcohol in this country, uh, punch was kind of the go-to cocktail. Uh, it, it wasn't there weren't all these uh, fancy cocktails that you might see at a bar nowadays. Um, it was just punch and various forms of punch. So. Uh, an introduction for kind of the flow of things tonight. Uh, we already went through the introduction, but I want to highlight one other bit of information. Uh, then we'll talk about Freemasons as well. Uh, oh, sorry, before that, uh, taverns and drinking culture in colonial and early America. Uh, then we'll talk about Freemasons as it relates to taverns and refreshment. Um, we'll talk about a punch bowl. Uh, and then the final section of this conversation will be about how we attempted to recreate the punch based on receipts. So um, by way of introduction, I uh, mentioned this a, a couple minutes ago. This was uh, a good friend and brother who engaged in this research with me. Uh, kind of in the background there, you can see the early maps of New Haven. Um, and this paper ultimately grew out of our interest there. I mentioned the receipts that we saw during that research earlier, uh, but also wanted to note that uh, there was something in it in one of the old books that was in the archives about this punch bowl. And here you can see a picture of it. it said it <clears throat> belonged to Hiram Lodge in New Haven, Connecticut. Uh, and we were very intrigued about this and asked uh, many brothers uh, about our lodge and no one seemed to have much information. So this was a, a brand new discovery and that's kind of what steered us toward punch. Uh, so briefly to describe the research method, obviously, you know, uh, primary sources are the ideal and we used, you know, physical objects from the archives, including receipts and photos, uh, as well as etchings, uh, where those uh, weren't, Uh, we would 
use books to help us with that. Um, so there were a couple uh, books that were a big help. One was called Taverns in Early America, and another was called Punch. Uh, we also used some newspaper articles to fill in some gaps, as well as uh, other papers uh, and previous research that we've engaged with. So let's talk about taverns and drinking culture. Uh, today's bar that you might go down the street to, it really pales in comparison to the colonial tavern. The tavern uh, served a vital role in every, pretty much every early American society. Uh, and that's what we're gonna talk about in the following slides. So uh, included here are some visuals. Uh, this is a, a, the bar portion of a, a tavern, uh, historical recreation tavern in Lexington, Mass. Um, and when you look at early colonial America and then early uh, in the country of America, most towns had two like prominent noticeable structures. Mm -hmm. uh, and one is the church, and then the other is the tavern, aka public house, aka the ordinary, etc. Uh, and I think that one could make an argument that the tavern was just as, if not more important than churches. I mentioned um, earlier work uh, overlaying my mother lodge's meeting locations onto an early map of uh, New Haven, Connecticut, which happens to be one of the first like planned, uh, like gridded cities in the country. Uh, this map was uh, published in 1748, and it shows the residents of, uh, like, at every house and building that was in the city, uh, and then, like, all of the, the store-type places, uh, and I sat here and tallied it up, and in this uh, town map of New Haven in 1748, taverns outnumbered churches two to one. Wow. So, uh, they were certainly important, and, uh, like, obviously, taverns had alcohol and we'll get to that but i want to talk about other aspects of uh, what they do so one important rule uh, role was food you know there weren't just restaurants that you could go to they were always affiliated with the tavern uh additionally you uh could meet there you could meet a friend you could meet a small group of people um, and these meetings had all sorts of purposes you might conduct business at a tavern uh, right there, uh, some private tables near the back. Uh, could also be some political government uh, meetings. Whether or not those were held at the local church uh, or the tavern kind of depended on the, the purpose and the, the feeling of the community. Also, uh, a huge portion of tavern culture related to clubs and fraternities. Um, one example is the Tuesday Club. Other clubs uh, during this era were very exclusive, typically all the same class of people in a community. Um, some clubs, frankly, just like met to drink, uh, but then there were other ones that focused on, you know, discussion of philosophy or comedy or other like special interest clubs and fraternities. There's also uh, a group that met in a tavern. Uh, you may recognize this. Uh, to the true born sons of liberty. Uh, this was a meeting at the Green Dragon Tavern right before the Boston Tea Party. Um, so even that happened in a tavern. Uh, 
Taverns also were a place where uh, you could get lodging. You know, there weren't typically inns as we think about them today. The tavern was kind of a one-stop shop. Uh, and in that same vein, you could also purchase goods, uh, whether that is alcohol or food items uh, or, you know, even things you might need for your home. Uh, and so if we think about the American tavern, it's also important to consider uh, <clears throat> important to consider the bear with me just a moment. Let's see if that helps. Um, the role of the tavern along the the early postal roads. And so if you take a look at uh, this map that's pictured here, there were kind of three Boston post roads that ran from New York up to Boston. Uh, they obviously were collinear for a bit, but um, news and goods and information at this time traveled by horse. And those horses and riders needed to make pit stops. And so the American tavern at this time was the first kind of gas station and rest stop to refuel uh, and get what you need before moving along. So <clears throat> it is much more important than just food and lodging. Uh, taverns were essential for uh, early colonial communication networks. Additionally, uh, it was a, a place to gather and you know be in community with other people in tech um and so this will take us to our next topic which is alcohol at that time period uh but first a recap so i have here just kind of a list of all the things that uh the american tavern did for a community a restaurant a hotel a post office uh kind of the local news source entertainment court uh, houses and um, trials were often held at the tavern. Uh, there was a, it was a general store. It was really the, the common uh, meeting house and chamber of commerce for the area. Uh, you could gamble there. And then, of course, <laughs> it was a bar. Can you so imagine having court and gambling in the same building today? <laughs> uh, I love this, this painting because you can see someone sipping a, a big draft of punch in the back. Uh, so at that time period, we drank a lot, a lot. Um, so it says here, uh, this is from uh, the Alcoholic Republic, one of the sources we used, that Americans uh, in between 1790 and 1830, which was like prime punch period, drank more alcoholic beverages per capita than before or since. Uh, here's another... Uh, etching showing the importance of punch and then gathered around. Uh, just a couple of graphs to back, back that up. You can see some sketchy data in early colonial America. Uh, but then when we have a little harder data, you see a real peak um, prior to kind of the, the prohibition. Uh, so in 1770 there, uh, it was around four, uh, a little shy for gallons per capita. Uh, and then <clears throat> it 
really peaked around 1820, and it uh, has never reached uh, near that height again. Wow. Uh, and so there's a question that's appropriate to ask why for uh, all of this alcohol consumption. And so uh, water was, there are a number of reasons. One is that water was often uh, not tasty, uh, sometimes dangerous to drink. It, it might smell foul or taste a little foul. Um, alcohol at the time was considered a cure-all. Uh, when, when in toasts, we toast to someone's health, uh, that's because it was thought that imbibing alcohol was healthy, that it would uh, help revive you. Uh, it also, around this time period, was considered part of the diet. Uh, and then lastly, culture and tradition uh, around drinking as part of society kind of came with us across the world. When we look at what uh, the early Americans drank, uh, there was, as noted earlier in our conversation, a lot of distilled spirits. Uh, rum, especially rum. Uh, and then second place rum seemed to be gin most frequently, as well as brandy and whiskey. Then they also drank some lighter beverages, the most common of which were cider, beer, and wine. So that is a little bit of background in terms of uh, drinking culture in early America broadly. I want to talk now about uh, Freemasons as it relates to them. Uh, so the early American Freemasons met in and were very familiar with taverns. Uh, this carried over from England. It was uh, prohibitively expensive to have private rooms for you know, only a, one Masonic Lodge or two Masonic Lodges in town. Uh, and it was much easier to meet in a private room in a tavern and then have refreshment provided for there. Uh, and this is evident in my study of our lodges, meeting locations, but also you know, there are a number of very famous early American lodges that met in taverns, uh, including the Ton Tavern in, in Philadelphia. Uh, this, uh, in 1732, this was the location of uh, St. John's Lodge Number One, uh, and then you know later involved with uh, the Masonic Temple in Philadelphia, uh, and that current. Uh, the current temple in Philadelphia recognizes this as kind of like the birthplace of masonry in America. But there's always this kind of like rivalry between Philadelphia and Boston. Uh, and so it wouldn't be complete if we didn't talk about the bunch of grapes uh, tavern. Um, Indeed. The constitution of the first lodge, like formally constituted in the states uh, or in the colonies, uh, was uh, called the first lodge. Uh, and then later St. John uh, in 1733. Uh, it was called the Bunch of Grapes Tavern. Uh, like most taverns at that time period, there would be signs with animals or vegetation. Uh, and uh, pictured here is a recreation of those Bunch of Grapes uh, that is currently in the temple in downtown Boston. So, um, 
you know, it's important to consider early Masons in the New World as a part of the culture of the day, right? We, we have to think about them in context. And <clears throat> at that time period, at every gathering, there was alcohol, you know, whether that was like a city council meeting or whether it was everyone in the community gathering, uh, meeting and like helping pay, whatever it was, there was always going to be alcohol provided. Um, and taverns were an essential part of that early Masonic Lodge experience, uh, just based on their role in the community and that uh, larger context. It wasn't because they had alcohol, it was that they had you know, private rooms to rent. Uh, and because it was that time, alcohol played a really significant role in early Masonic uh, experience. And uh, from writings of uh, early notes in my lodge's history, as well as early studies of lodges in colonial America, punch was a big deal. So <clears throat> I want to have a brief aside about uh, this slide from earlier, this punch bowl. Um, this punch bowl, uh, so this this picture wasn't even like in my lodge's records. Uh, it really? was in a book in the archives. The, the book was called uh, Masonic Curios and then had like a 20 word subtitle. Um, but this book was published in 1903, and I hadn't seen mention of this punch bowl since then. Uh, so part of my interest and search was to try to locate this thing. Um, the punch bowl was uh, said to be located in the New Haven Colony Historical Society collection, uh, owned by Hiram Lodge Number 1, but uh, given to the Historical Society to display. Um, and uh, this picture, the, the note in the picture and in the book that it came from said, <laughs> China Bowl. The bowl was imported from China by Major William <laughs> Munson prior to 1799 and was donated to Hiram Lodge by his daughter, Miss Grace Wheeler, on her 99th birthday in 1891 as a token to the memory of her father. Um, the brother who uh, ordered this China bowl was uh, like imported and manufactured in China and then imported overseas, ordered a pair of them. Uh, he was uh, a soldier in the revolution. Uh, he was a close friend of General Washington uh, prior to the presidency, obviously. Um, he was a worshipful master of our lodge uh, and he ordered a pair of these uh, Masonic punch bowls with the intent of bringing one to Hiram Lodge and giving one to Brother Washington. Wow. Uh, the, the family lore is that uh, the, the bowl arrived after uh, George Washington had passed, but that he did get the bowl to um, Martha still as like a token of his friendship with uh, President Washington. So uh, some of that information was contained in the caption of this picture. You know, it's impossible to see because this picture is 120 years old. Um, even when I zoomed in, I, I thought 
that I sought. I wanted to believe that was it. Um, and I really, I, I wanted more than anything to try to find it. So that took me to um, the Historical Society. Uh, I reached out to the manager of collections. Um, she had said essentially, like, let me look. It might take a while. Um, and after a, a wait of some time on pins and needles, um, Mary Chris indicated that she had found it in their collections, kind of buried. And we were able to go there and take a look at it. So wow. um, I found, uh, I, like, laid over here a picture with the original punch uh, bowl, and uh, it, it was even more vibrant in person. Uh, I, you know, took pictures of all the outside, uh, a number of interesting Masonic symbols. Uh, it's clear that some of those Masonic symbols have changed from the 1790s to today. Uh, some have not. And uh, just a, a very beautifully produced thing that um, brothers of my lodge drank punch from you know, hundreds of years ago. That's gorgeous. Zoom through a couple of pictures here. Then, <clears throat> come to find out, in the late 80s, uh, someone broke into the museum, uh, had nothing to do with the punch bowl, but this person uh, really wanted to get these Revolutionary War uh, pistols. Uh, they were owned by uh, Lieutenant Colonel David Humphreys, uh, who was an aide-de-camp to General Washington. And... Uh, by chance, a brother of another lodge in Connecticut. Oh, whoa. Uh, when he was breaking into the museum as part of the smash and grab, knocked over the punch bowl and shattered it. Uh, I included here in the slide deck just kind of a, um, a statement of the team that repaired it and restored it. Uh, at the time, the punch bowl was uh, valued and insured at a little over $10,000. And so um, they used this money to help fund the repairs of it. It's a, a little hard to see, um, but oh, yeah. there were some large pieces and then some very small pieces. So I, I tinted it a bit darker. So, they did an amazing uh, job on that, though. They reassembled it with, uh, with great care, and it ended up back in the museum's collection. It um, kind of was in and out of circulation over the years. Uh, in and out of circulation over the years, and we. So that's that's um, really cool. Are you able to hear me now? Went to visit it, and now no, it's like an audio. well known as part <laughs> of the experience of uh, Hiram Lodge. Sorry, everybody, dealing with a little bit of audio issues here. I can hear you now, Alex. I'm hear me now? Sorry. Okay. No, no, you're good. It's the joy of dealing with technology. <laughs> you know, as someone who taught during the pandemic, you think I would have worked out all the kinks by now? But no, dice. no. So, so I was saying there that that's just an amazing job because before you said that, I would not have seen those lines. Mm -hmm. I mean that that is stellar uh, that they were able to. I mean, keep the artwork intact so much. Um, but I mean, obviously, yeah, when you, when you show that picture with that, understand you, you can see the lines, but right. that is some very skilled work. Right. Mm -hmm. 
very skilled work. Yeah, it was uh, it was quite an experience. I, I I was really moved to see it in person. Something that had been made in China in the 1790s, shipped overseas, uh, had such like that that item itself carried so much history. Uh, I was fascinated by it, and that just uh, really drove me to do the the next part of this, um, which is trying to recreate the punch. Oh so, man, uh, <laughs> it was it was really interesting to kind of like go through our records and tally. So I just want to briefly shout out this book, um, Punch. Uh, this person happens to be like a historian of alcohol. Uh, it's very kind of witty and entertaining to read. You can see my copy is flagged in a bajillion places. Uh, I've used it so much that like the, the binding is a little bit broken. Um, it's something that I go back to and, and look at punch recipes uh, even today. Uh, so if, if it is something that in, at all intrigues you, I, I would wholeheartedly recommend this book. Does anyone look at you like you have alcohol issues when they see a history of alcohol book that's that <laughs> earmarked? <laughs> um, I, I think it's indicative that I have some issues. Maybe <laughs> some involving alcohol. I'm not sure uh, what else. Oh, that's fantastic, man. Um, so you're so, able to dig into your lodge's history and mm -hmm. find throughout these these various receipts uh, this this punch recipe uh, or at least the ingredients for it. When and like what was going through your mind at that point when you're like I got I got to do this? <laughs> well, uh, it was um, I've, I've always been kind of like an amateur mixologist and interested okay. in kind of flavors and and textures as part of. Um, drinks. And, sure. you know, when I had done that initial research and it was just like, uh, I think it's on a slide here, like here, two quarts of sherry, a, a quart of gin, uh, a bunch of spirits. And then, um, you know, the, these happen to be in pints, but then there would be some that would be like four gallons of blank, four gallons of rum. Wow. I just found myself wondering when I was looking at the receipts originally, like, what could they be doing? I I know that, like, I get it. They weren't teetotal. Like, they, they weren't just not drinking. But I'm pretty sure. sure they weren't, like, sitting at the bar ripping shots. Uh, and so when I, I saw the punch bowl, I, I started to put it together. But I, I feel like my conception of punch at that point was much more like, you know, it was that thing that was on the table at the middle school dance, right? That you, are, right? That was that that you know um, fake pink color that might have had like Seven Up or something. You know, <laughs> I, I didn't really have a conception of punch as like an alcoholic drink. Right, um, punch is that thing that's you know it it gets spiked, but it's usually not supposed to be alcoholic. You yeah, know? <laughs> exactly. Uh, and so I I started to do a little bit of research and see some recipes, and then. I managed to come across this book and it really changed my perspective about, uh, you know, what punch is and, and how it works. And um, as as part of the history in this book, um, the author, David Wungridge, kind of um, distills down, as it were, the, the general rule of thumb for punches. Uh, and he also includes a, a wide variety of punch recipes. But the, the general rule that that he uses across uh, his recipes uh, is, uh, and this is a quote, one of sour, one of sweet, 
four of strong and six of weak. And so wow. this is um, kind of the ratios of ingredients uh, as you're making any of these punches. And so uh, when we look at sour, uh, the most common thing is lemons. Uh, and if lemons were out of season or hard to get, uh, limes were a good backup. And at that time period, uh, sometimes those words were used uh, interchangeably. Uh, and so down at the bottom of this receipt that's up on the screen uh, is a, a dozen uh, limes, or uh, not limes, excuse me, lemons. Um, and so some of the other receipts have limes, but mostly lemons. And um, I, so I love how they put it into, I love how they put it into rhyme form there. Like they don't oh, want to yeah. forget this recipe, right? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's still, it's stuck with me over the years. Like I prepped this uh, research in 2016 and 2017. And I still, it's like a mantra almost. That's awesome. Um, so certainly sours were accounted for in our receipts over and over again. Um, sweet is obviously sugar. Um, sugar at that time period was not as you buy sugar today, right? Not mm -hmm. uh, loosely packed or granulated. It was often uh, done in kind of a loaf. Uh, and so it was coarse, kind of like sandpaper, and you would flake off sugar as you needed it. Um, and uh, here you can see that it's a, a pound of sugar, right? Uh, the early secretaries, um, obviously, right, because if we were still under colonial rule, you see the, the pound sign either as what we would call hashtag today, or us elder millennials would know as the pound sign from the the phone keyboard, um, but they also sometimes would use the, the pound of uh, like the British currency type symbol. Um, and so sugar, uh, here we can see uh, a pound. Uh, so plenty of sugars. Uh, and then if we think about uh, strong versus weak, the, the strong stuff uh, as indicated here was typically rum uh, or brandy or a mixture of both. Um, so that's the, the strong stuff. Uh, and then six of wheat. The weak part um, was not as clearly elucidated. Um, before we get to the weak, so, so we talked about rum, brandy. It was also sometimes sherry. Um, so here you can see sherry wine. Uh, it was also sometimes like variants on sherry, like Madeira or um, Tenerife. So all of those are examples of like a strong uh, fortified spirit that we would throw in the punch. Um, so again, here's like receipt after receipt evidence that there was always booze. Um, but what doesn't survive in the receipts is the weak element. Uh, hmm. Weak would, uh, according to the, the book that I've been uh, praising, would be water sometimes, uh, or a black tea or green tea. Ah, okay. Uh, and so we had no indication of what the weak ingredient was for our attempt to recreate the punch. You know, like obviously we could get rum or brandy or sherry. But we had no indication of what the kind of preferred 
weak ingredient was. Sure. Uh, and so that led to uh, the need to do some experimentation. Um, so regardless of what the weak thing was, uh, it was uh, like almost universally flavored with citrus. And so there's kind of a three part process to, to um, make the, the weak part of the punch. The first thing is something called an oleosaccharum. Um, essentially, you, you peel just the zest off of lemons. Uh, you can't do it with limes because the, the final product is really kind of bitter and unpalatable. Um, so you, you zest the lemon and then you would kind of rub it along that loaf of sugar. Uh, and uh, to recreate that, we've like kind of muddled sugar and lemon zest uh, peels together. Uh, you let it sit for like an hour, and that helps draw out the essential oils in the citrus. Um, and so it, it pulls out the essential oils and makes kind of a very lemony syrup. Uh, and so after that, uh, you then kind of take that oleosaccharum and add it to either hot water or green tea or black tea. You stir it around. You let that steep all together for five to ten minutes, and then you uh, you take off take out all the solids. You filter out all of the remaining lemon peels and any of the other little bits in there. Uh, and this hot water helps maximize the extraction extraction of the flavor and essential oils from the citrus. Uh, so then finally, you add a little more uh, freshly squeezed juice. So all those lemons that you peel to get the zest of, you squeeze the juice out and add it to this uh, water or tea plus oleosaccharum thing. And this thing together is called a shrub. Uh, I've noticed in the last five years or so, I've started to see shrubs sold at farmers markets and at stores. And I'm not sure if I had just never noticed it before this research paper, um, but shrubs seem to have a presence in modern day, whether or not they're intended for punch. Uh, they're intended to be consumed because they, they have a lot of really rich flavor. And so that is the weak. The weak is the shrub. And then uh, you combine it with the, the spirits. You chill it, but not like ice cold um, sure. because when things are too cold, it limits the, the aromatics over, over the head of the drink. Uh, and so, you know, a little bit below room temperature is ideal. And so armed with this punch book and uh, the, the ratios, we sat out to uh, try to recreate something that we thought tasted good and was feasible for something that they could have, could have had to drink from, you know, the 1760s to the 1830s. Um, since, you know, we had record in the receipts of all of these different, uh, spirits, uh, and we didn't know the shrubs, it led to a huge number of combinations that we wanted to try. So I made shrubs with lime, with lemon, and then with lemon and green tea, and then lemon and black tea, and then a whole bunch of different combinations of spirits, uh, listed below there. I used ratios from uh, some of the recipes in the book for like if I did rum and sherry, I used uh, those combinations. Uh, here's a picture of that oleosaccharum. Uh, you can see I, I used some like sugar in the raw here, so it was extra gritty. 
to pull out some of the essential oils. Uh, we don't need to read through all this. It was just tape like notes on how I prepared each thing. Um, <clears throat> the shrub after it steeps really gets more and more of that flavor. And um, not this kind of shrub, right? We're talking about the, the, <laughs> uh, the, the liquid kind. And so I set this up essentially in a grid. I made all of my combinations of spirits uh, and then set up a tasting grid. Uh, and we had three people taste test each and every one of these and give it a score uh, out of 10. And then we kind of like combined our scores. So we, we wanted to narrow it down from, uh, I think, 28 possibilities to like three or four. And so I, you know, a couple of us, we had different palettes and we wanted to suss out which of these were terrible and which, which of these were good to the modern uh, taste. Uh, a couple more action shots here. You can see they all, it was like a huge gradient of different colors. Um, this was the final score. Uh, the gist overall here is that the lime shrub was uh, not so great and neither was the green tea shrub. Overall, the, the lemon shrub seemed to perform the best uh, and best when uh, served with either brandy and sherry or rum and brandy. Uh, mm. And so that is kind of what we went armed with. We uh, took these three punch recipes to the lodge when we presented this paper uh, and re in refreshment after the lodge, you know, everybody taste tested and we then kind of like took an informal vote or poll on which one the brothers present liked the most. And that's how we arrived uh, at our uh, consensus recipe. Uh, of, of note, um, an interest uh, or an area for further research for me is uh, gin punches. There was gin in our receipts occasionally, although not nearly as frequently as the the sherry or rum uh, and so on, or brandy. Um, I'm still interested in trying gin punches, but I, this is uh, what we're most proud of. Did, did you happen uh, to notice is, in the time if it was maybe a price thing or why that would be? Been. Um, and, uh, you know, we were not drinking the expensive stuff, you know. Right. If, if right. you're throwing three gallons of stuff into a bowl, you're not going to use top shelf. Maybe not bottom shelf, but maybe the one right above the bottom. There you uh, go. And in our recreation, that's kind of what we found. So uh, I have up here uh, posted the the kind of consensus punch recipe to, to create a, a gallon of this punch. Uh, this was the one that the brothers voted on. Uh, and an important element of the every one of these punch recipes was being topped with uh, freshly ground nutmeg. And I, I at first thought this was a little cheesy. You know, Connecticut is known as the nutmeg state. Um, but I, I have to admit, it really does add to the flavor of the punch. Well, there you go. And that is uh, kind of the end of uh, the conversation that I had prepped for. But I would love to answer any questions you have. Man, that, so that's fantastic. And I guess the first question I would say there is, so you, you take this recipe and you've obviously got all these various uh, variations of this drink. Uh, you came to a consensus, but how many were strayed? Were there uh, guys that preferred 
one over the other? The um, This consensus recipe of uh, kind of the straight lemon shrub and then uh, rum and brandy was, um, I think it won, uh, had about like 65 to 70% votes. So uh, when, when we consider there were three options, there was one, now I can't recall which one it was, but there was one that had like a vote. Um, but overall, brothers seem to really prefer this one. That's awesome. So I, I'm really intrigued um, because when I when I did the history book for my lodge back in, well, I, uh, we released it in 2018, been working on it probably three years prior to that. Uh, my wife was the one to help me dig through all the minutes. And we did find a bunch of times because it, it was very popular in those days that uh, the ladies who... I, I guess they were probably all OES at the time, but the ladies of the lodge ran the banquet hall. That was just kind of their deal. And uh, it was, it was just kind of a thing that they always open lodge and then retired into the banquet hall and then would go back to lodge and close later. Um, so like the bulk of their activities were in there and it was, it was a formal mm -hmm. room and they always had a meal and we found lots of receipts for, I mean, regular celebrations uh, with listed way more people than, we fit in there today. So I'm like, man, you guys really like to party. But uh, obviously the big thing was always cigars in the time, but I really want to go back now and look at those individual items and see what there is to put together. Because I, I think what you've done here is really special. Um, kind of piercing past that veil of the brethren before us and understanding that aspect of history on this deeper level and then being able to recreate that and experience uh, that history, I, I think is really, really beautiful. So how, how often have you guys used this recipe since? And what do you, what do, you do with it now? Um, we use it at um, a few of our like annual communications or um, insulation banquets uh, for our, uh, obviously in the before times, pre-COVID, uh, during Grand Lodge sessions, um, there would be like hospitality rooms uh, in sure. the evenings, uh, and we made it for a few of those. Uh, nowadays, I uh, continue my interest in punch. Um, I am always like interested in trying new recipes or variations on this recipe. Um, I um, I think the last time I made punch was. February. I usually make a, about a gallon and then can it. I just opened uh, ah, a gallon okay. tonight. So you can see it's a, about this color when it comes out. Um, and uh, that way I kind of get to enjoy it uh, little by little over the next few months. That's awesome. So cool. Uh, so History-wise, in your particular area, ha have you had the opportunity or sparked the interest of maybe surrounding lodges uh, to see if they've had anything comparable within their lodges' history? Uh, I personally have not. Um, I've helped uh, some of the bodies that I was a part of uh, manage and better store archived material. Um, that's one thing that I'm very passionate about is, you know, I, I feel lucky to have been able to hold in my hands, uh, you know, record books from the 1750s, Definitely. receipts from that time period. Uh, and I only have that good fortune because Brothers Before Me took great care to preserve that material. Um, and that is something that I am 
interested in connecting with brothers or, or lodges with to try to help preserve that history as well as frankly like catalog it and figure out what's in there so yeah, many receipts i found in um like an old manila folder like those expanding right. folders just tucked uh, up and away and i'm sure that no one had opened that in years uh, if not so so you and i share that interest uh hand in hand uh, about the archival aspect and really for the same reasons as well. I mean, my, my history passion and our archival and digitization passion all started from digging into my lodge's history and just seeing that overwhelming need there. Um, so I, I got to ask, cause we were chartered 1868. You guys are far beyond that. Um, what majors have you guys taken in the preservation of your lodge's history? Yeah, um, when I was on uh, this kick, I, um, you know, we kind of like re reconstituted our lodges archives committee. Um, awesome. The the building that we currently inhabit, we share with a number of other lodges as well as, um, you know, uh, the the local Scottish Rite Valley and. Uh, all the York Rite bodies in town share this building. It has uh, three pretty large rooms. And it, when it was built, it was even more populated. Uh, and all of the organizations have uh, like an old bank safe. Each each organization has an old right. bank safe. And so one of the first things I did was get uh, a data logger to monitor uh, temperature change and humidity change mm -hmm. in there to make sure that it was a safe place to store those things long-term. Sure. And so I, I put one in that room and then there's a different kind of storage room that's that people are more in and out of. Um, but I wanted to kind of compare those and think about what was best. Uh, the safe ended up being a good bet. Uh, uh, like catalog things and got the special archival wrapping paper and boxes to store things. And right. Acid free. Store them flat and uh, just try to preserve um, like super thoughtful of those old things. Definitely. We had some of our early records uh, destroyed in a fire. So uh, our lodge was, uh, as was common at the time in the 1750s, there were fellow craft lodges and master's lodges. The, the brothers right. in the master's lodge were always affiliated with fellow craft lodge, but they kept separate minute books up until the you know, like I think 1799, if I remember correctly. Um, and they would often meet in the same types of places, but always separately. Uh, so not everyone was a member of the master's arch. Uh, and we lost uh, some of our early uh, Bellacraft Lodge records in a fire in like the 1830s. Uh, and so since then, we've taken great care to preserve those things. That's awesome. Well, I, I've got a couple more questions on that, but we are at 8.59. Um, so as we near the nine o'clock hour here, I wanted to ask if you would do us the honor uh, in offering up a toast this evening. Absolutely. Um, pardon me while I just grind a little nutmeg into it. <laughs> I'd be disappointed if you didn't. Uh, so as I, as I thought about a toast for this evening, I, I think about uh, how this... Uh, this podcast and the show is really uh, a brotherhood and community well dispersed. Um, 
people across the country and internationally. Uh, and uh, I was thinking more about what I said earlier regarding alcohol and its early uses. Uh, and so I just want to say to all brothers, wheresoever dispersed, um, here's to your health. To your health. Cheers. Fantastic. Thank you so much, brother. Yeah. Uh, now, if you don't mind, before we wrap up for this evening, uh, talking about uh, you guys obviously lost some in the fire, which masonry seems to have you know obviously the, this history of fire and water damage and so much so much loss there um with the acid-free boxes and taking those measures and even the temperature control which is way more than i've heard pretty much any other lodge out there doing so kudos to you guys have you uh, gotten into any digitization efforts yeah we um so yes and no um one of our brothers uh has over the years transcribed um these record books sure uh the you know in in my travels of all the minutes uh you know you i learned to tell one secretary from another by their handwriting um which was uh, an interesting result of spending that much time looking at the minutes books and frankly a lot of that uh early script is hard to read um he started that project at a time where scanners were not a very common uh, occurrence. Sure. Uh, still on our mind or on my mind is that that potential to digitize uh, for archival purposes as like photographs or scans. Right. Um, but it's not a project that we've begun. Definitely. It's a, it's a huge undertaking. And like you were saying, um, when I was in the process of doing our book, we had ordered a, uh, you know, because you've got your variations of book scanners. You've also got your variations of like archival level professional that you just, you know, is way out of a lodge's reach and mm -hmm. something that is in a lodge's reach. And we paid back in 2017, like, probably close to $300 for one off of Amazon, which I felt pretty good about. Mm -hmm. And it took great pictures. We, we bought it because of its OCR capabilities, making the content searchable by text. Sure. Um, and that did not work at all, which was a huge disappointment. I, you'd open it and just sit there and spin. And, uh, you know, yeah. we, we sent tech support email and, you know, weeks later got a broken English back. Yeah. It not worked so well, but oh. you said it did. Um, but recently we we've hooked up with this, uh, Caesar brand and they are phenomenal. So if you guys Ooh. get back into that, um, effort by all means, um, I, I would suggest to go with them because the, the equipment is great. It's affordable. And the OCR has been really good. I've been surprised even on the cursive writing that it's hard for even us to read. Uh, yeah. it, it picks up some of it surprisingly. I think that's only going to get better over time. So yeah, I bet. But I want to thank you so much. Uh, you dropped a bomb of knowledge on us this evening. I'm really intrigued to try that recipe now. Like I've, I've yeah. got to taste this for myself. So I, I, I can see myself at the store tomorrow buying some ingredients. Uh, but before we wrap up this evening, what final thoughts do you have and any plugs? Um, yeah, I, I just want to, again, express my gratitude for being able to, to be with you tonight and chat about uh history and, and topics that I'm super interested in. Um, I, I hope that you and other brothers might be intrigued enough to try this punch or other punches. Uh, it is very drinkable and um, 
pretty light. It's it's uh, a nice, refreshing drink. Um, I don't have any plugs personally. You know, I, I don't have. Uh, I'm not like well known enough in the Sonic Circle to have a, a website or anything. Um, my my plug, I think, is just for brothers to do what I've done. You know, you, you find something that piques your interest and just pull on that thread little by little until you get a clear picture of what's out there. And I think that is, you know, the idea of research sounds intimidating or scary. But just, you know, shine a light on it and see where that path goes. Well said, my brother. Uh, again, want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for coming on today, uh, taking out some of your time to share this history with us. It's been an amazing ride. I enjoyed everything I learned tonight. And uh, I, I will throw out one plug there for you, because I do believe that you're listed on the uh, Masonic Instruction uh, Speakers Bureau that uh, Brother Robert Johnson put together. So if you guys enjoyed uh, what Brother Cedric shared with us this evening and want to hear him speak, uh, you can find him there, MasonicInstruction.com. Uh, with that, I want to thank all of you for joining in live on all the different platforms we're on. Uh, we hope to see you soon. And until then, take care, brothers. Thanks, everyone.